Hello and welcome to our lecture on modernism. We'll explore this literary movement through the writings of two early 20th century women writers, Virginia Woolf and Catherine Mansfield. Born in 1882 in London, Virginia Woolf was a novelist and critic. She's best known for novels such as Mrs Dalloway, To the Lighthouse and Orlando, and for groundbreaking feminist criticism such as A Room of One's Own. Woolf was also part of the influential Bloomsbury group, a loose collection of writers and artists who lived in the Bloomsbury area of London, including historian Lytton Strachey, economist John Maynard Keynes, novelist E.M. Forrester and the painter Roger Fry. Like Woolf, the other members of the Bloomsbury group reacted against what they saw as the conservatism and the hypocrisy of the Victorian era. Catherine Mansfield was born in New Zealand in 1888, which was then part of the British Empire. A short story writer, Mansfield was particularly influenced by the Russian writer Anton Chekhov, whose work Wolf praises in modern fiction. Like Wolf, Mansfield became part of a close-knit artistic circle and was friends with a number of literary contemporaries, including D.H. Lawrence and Wolf herself. Like Yeats, Mansfield and Wolf are part of the modernist movement, which is an early 20th century international artistic movement usually dated from around 1910 to 1940. Critics generally recognise modernism as a response to modernity itself. As we discussed last week, the accelerating pace of change in the early 20th century destabilised old certainties. New forms of communication and transportation transformed perceptions of time and space. Industrialization and automation altered working lives beyond recognition. Will science, philosophy and psychology continue to undermine traditional assumptions about the self and the place of humanity in the universe? Any doubt that the world had changed utterly were dispelled by the devastation and catastrophic losses of the First World War, the first fully industrialised war. Given this context, it's unsurprising that a sense of bleakness at the effects of industrialization on humanity often characterises modernist art. The modernists themselves exhibit an acute consciousness of having entered a new era in the early 20th century. In Kangaroo in 1923, for example, D.H. Lawrence claimed that, quote, it was in 1915 the old world ended, a date that reflects the impact of the First World War on perceptions of culture and society. In Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown in 1924, Wolfe picks an earlier date, writing, on or about December 1910, human nature changed. All human relations shifted, those between masters and servants, husbands and wives, parents and children. And when human relations change, there is at the same time a change in religion, conduct, politics and literature. December 1910 was the date of London's first post-impressionist painting exhibition, which had been organised by Roger Fry, another member of the Bloomsbury Group. However, it's important that we realise that Woolf's statement refers to more than artistic change. Rather, in this statement, Woolf suggests that all social relationships, including the most intimate, were profoundly changed at the beginning of the 20th century. Her reference to masters and servants, husbands and wives is particularly worth noting. The period of the First World War and after saw marked changes to Britain's class structure, as the working class increasingly challenged Britain's hierarchical social structures. Women too saw greater freedoms, marked by changes in education, work, fashion, leisure pursuits and politics as women were finally given the right to vote in 1918. Wolfe also suggests that when, quote, human relations change, there is at the same time a change in religion, conduct, politics and literature. 
That is, social change inevitably also produces cultural change, seen in literature and other areas. And Wolfe was not the only modernist to make this point. In the Metaphysical Poets, T.S. Eliot argued, quote, Our civilization comprehends great variety and complexity, and this variety and complexity, playing upon a refined sensibility, must produce various and complex results. The poet must become more and more comprehensive, more elusive, more indirect, in order to face, to dislocate, if necessary, language into his meaning. In other words, Eliot suggests that traditional literary conventions are inadequate to represent their new reality. Instead, literature must seek new ways to convey human experience and human understanding of the world. Perhaps the easiest way to understand modernism is to understand it through changes in visual art. This painting, Edward Manet's Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe, was shocking for its contemporary audience because of its subject matter. If you're listening to the podcast, it shows two fully clothed men having a picnic with two naked women. However, technically or formally, it's a fairly conventional attempt to use painting to reproduce reality more or less objectively. In the 1870s, the Impressionist movement emerges in art. As Claude Monet's Impression Sunset demonstrates, Impressionist paintings do not attempt to represent what a camera or a photograph might capture, but instead they offer us a viewer's subjective impression of a scene. Though Monet's painting plays with colour and form, it's still an easily recognisable scene, relying on conventional uses of perspective, for example. By contrast, a modernist painting like Pablo Picasso's Les Demoiselles d'Avignon is far more disruptive, dislocating our view of its subject by offering multiple points of perspective simultaneously to create a fragmented image. Modernist literature attempts to do in words what Picasso does in paint. Like Picasso's painting, it's experimental. Make it new, Ezra Pound's phrase becomes the mantra of the modernist movement. Like Picasso's painting, modernist literature is frequently fragmentary, offering us shifting perspectives and voices. And much as the subject matter of Picasso's painting shocked contemporary audiences, it depicts women in a brothel, so modernist literature often shocked its audience by describing the parts of life excluded from Victorian literature. But we can also make connections between modernism and romanticism. Like romanticism, modernism often favours the use of colloquial language and subjective accounts of reality. If you're looking for examples of modernist literature, take a look at T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, Ezra Pound's Cantos, James Joyce's Ulysses, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse, or William Faulkner's The Sound and the Fury. We're reading two works this week to help us understand this movement, Woolf's Modern Fiction and Catherine Mansfield's The Garden Party. Woolf's essay is a manifesto of sorts for modernism. In it, she rejects the traditional conventions of fiction. For Woolf, conventional fiction, or what she calls materialist fiction, is excessively focused on depictions of our external material reality rather than on our internal subjective experience of the world. She favours what she calls spiritual fiction, like that written by the Russian short story writer Chekhov and by modernist fiction writers such as James Joyce. Such writers, she believes, are not, quote, enthralled to some powerful and unscrupulous tyrant to provide a plot, to provide comedy, tragedy, love interest, and an air of probability in bamming the whole. Instead, she suggests they come closer to life as they attempt to reproduce our subjective experience of reality, what she calls, quote, the atoms as they fall upon the mind in the order in which they fall. 
What's important to note here is that Wolf's conception of our experience of reality is that that experience itself is fragmentary. Though Mansfield's short story The Garden Party is not as obviously experimental as the fiction of James Joyce or the paintings of Pablo Picasso, her work nonetheless embodies many of the principles of modernist literature. This short story is not brief and conclusive, like conventional short stories, but, to quote Wolf, it is vague and inconclusive, as the unspecified it of the last sentence illustrates. The dramatic action of the story, the death of the working man, is not depicted, and her focus instead lies squarely on the interior life of the story's protagonist, Laura. All right, well, thank you as always for listening, and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this week's readings. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the lecture on Philip Larkin. Born in Coventry in the Midlands in 1922, Larkin was and remains one of Britain's most popular 20th century poets. Best known as a poet, Larkin also wrote fiction, essays and served as jazz critic for the Daily Telegraph newspaper for 10 years. Larkin also influenced literary tastes in mid 20th century Britain, editing the Oxford Book of 20th Century English Verse in 1973. Such was his standing that he was offered the Poet Laureateship in 1984, though he declined this offer because he felt his gift as a poet had come to an end, and he died the following year. As a young man, Larkin was influenced by modernist poetry, most especially that by W.B. Yeats. However, he came to repudiate this early enthusiasm, stating, quote, Yeats came to seem so artificial, all that crap about mass and Crazy Jane and all the rest. It rang so completely unreal. Claiming to hate, quote, Parker, Pound and Picasso, Larkin rejected all forms of modernism in music, literature and art. And I should mention here that Pound is Ezra Pound, the poet, and Parker is Charlie Parker, the famous experimental jazz musician from Kansas City. In place of modernist experimentation, Larkin advocated a return to what he saw as the traditional roots of English poetry, epitomised for him by writers such as William Wordsworth and Thomas Hardy. While the meaning of modernist poetry can be obscure or elusive, Larkin's poetry is generally concrete and direct. As you'll see from this week's poems, his language can be blunt, bold and sometimes shockingly colloquial. He became associated with the movement, which was a group of young anti-modernist young male poets whose other members included Kingsley Amos, Thomas Gunn and Donald Davey. Like Larkin's, their poetry is the poetry of the suburban and the quotidian, the everyday. In Larkin's words, quote, Poetry is an affair of sanity, of seeing things as they are. I don't want to transcend the commonplace. I love the commonplace. Everyday things are lovely to me. Of course, as always, we don't have to take writers at their own word. Larkin claimed he didn't want to transcend the commonplace, and yet we might read The Last Stanza of High Windows as just such a moment of transcendence. And immediately, rather than words, comes the thought of high windows, the sun-comprehending glass, and beyond it the deep blue air, that shows nothing and is nowhere and is endless. But it's important that we place Larkin in his historical and social context, as well as his literary context. Larkin's poetry is inextricably associated with post-war Britain, that is, Britain after the Second rather than the First World War. If the First World War transformed Britain's class structure and gender relations, 
the Second World War transformed its position in the world. Once the preeminent global superpower, Britain's global status declined markedly after the Second World War. The war had bankrupted Britain. Extraordinarily, some of its debt to the US from this war was only paid off in the early 21st century. As we'll learn next week, the British Empire also began to collapse after the war as colonies declared their independence one by one from Britain. Compounding this sense of Britain as a country in decline were shortages of consumer goods and rationing, which continued well into the 1950s. All of these factors contributed to a mood of pessimism in Britain and about Britain, perceptible in Larkin's poetry. We're reading three poems by Larkin this week, and we'll think especially about churchgoing, which is often seen as the movement poem. It's also clearly influenced by the traditional British poetry that Larkin loved. We can understand it as an updated graveyard meditation in the tradition of Thomas Gray's Elegy in a Country Churchyard, for example. We might also note that churchgoing follows the Romantic lyric tradition, in which an immediate sensory experience provokes a meditation on the past and the future. In this poem, the speaker describes a visit to an empty church that prompts him to consider why he visits churches and what the future of these buildings and religion more generally will be. The title itself gestures towards multiple meanings, referring both to the idea of going to a church as a tourist or as an act of religious worship, and to the idea that the church that is, religion, might go or disappear from British culture. Like the other Larkin poems we're reading this week, there's a clear tonal shift in church going. While its opening is colloquial and flippant, its tone becomes progressively more solemn as the speaker's attitude to the church and to religion shifts through the poem. He concludes that the church is, quote, a serious house on serious earth, and what he means by this is something we'll explore this week on the discussion board. All right. Thank you for listening. As always, looking forward to your thoughts. Bye-bye.